to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 99 where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever the hell you want to read it. What are you busting my chops for? Hey. Hey, you mama Luke. What do we got for him here? <laughs> we have American Splendor number one from way back May 1976. Written, edited, and published by Harvey Picar. Art by Gary Gary G. Dumb, Greg Budget, Robert Crump, Lad Jerick, Brian Bram. Uh, came with a cover price of one dollar. One dollar. And yes, Chris was not making fun of that guy. His last name is in fact. Dumb with two M's, so that's... It might uh, be dumb um, um. Might be, exactly. <laughs> Maybe the pronunciation is off. Uh, yeah, so this is this is what we're going to talk about. But first, of course, the creator bio. We're going to start with Harvey Lawrence Picar, born October 8th, 1939, in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, luckily for us, Harvey spent a lot of his life creating autobiographical comics, so we know quite a bit about him and his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and his younger brother, Alan, were born in Cleveland to Saul and Dora Picar, immigrants from Bialystok, Poland. They owned and ran a grocery store on Kinsman Avenue. Saul Picar was a Talmudic scholar, which is essentially like one notch down from a rabbi, or like a rabbi, but you don't get paid for it, if that makes huh. no sense at all. <laughs> uh, Harvey's first language was Yiddish, and he came to enjoy reading novels in that language. Of his parents, Harvey said in 2005, Well, my parents were both from northeastern Poland, from Shettles. My mother is from a place called Breznica, and my father is from a place called Novi Dvor. And my mother came over to the United States first in the 1920s. And I don't know, I think maybe partly because she was, like, really short, you know, she couldn't find a husband. And they said and they said she got sent back to Europe again in 1935. And I guess at that time, you know, she was on, you know, she was supposed to be, or maybe my relatives who were still there were supposed to be, you know, looking out for her and trying to find her somebody. And she did come up with my father. My father sees, as long as I've known him, my father's been real religious, and my mother was a communist. We were for Henry Wallace in 1948, but they seem to have resolved their differences that way. I know that they, my mother wouldn't go to shul on the high holidays and stuff like that, but they got along. They respected their differences. I don't know of too many cases that are like that because they both believe pretty strongly what they, you know, in my mother's case, in her politics, and in my father's case, in his religion. Mm-hmm. Harvey didn't have a lot of friends as a young kid. The neighborhood he lived in had once been all white, but became mostly black by the 1940s. This was not uncommon in the 1940s uh, around America. As one of the only white kids still living there, Picar was often beaten up. In that same 2005 interview, Harvey explained, I didn't like it. I mean, it didn't, it really messed me up. Every day when I would come back from school or go to, you know, back to my house for lunch or something like that during a lunch break, you know, there'd be a bunch of guys, you know, that would jump me. And I had to, you know, I had to fight through that kind of scene for, you know, a couple of years. 
and nobody talked to me on the street. I was just, you know, completely shunned. And as a result, I actually started to think of myself as some kind of an inferior. And, you know, you know, they used to call me White Cracker. That was my nickname. And so I would just, you know, be by myself all the time. And then I, you know, I got going when I started reading. That helped me out a lot. I learned how to read, and I would read comic books and stuff, and that helped. You might have a verbal tick there. A little bit, a little bit, you, you know. know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, the tables turned in high school, however, as Harvey, Harvey would elaborate. He says, well, I was a lot more confident about myself because, you know, I bought, into, I bought into this idea that the toughest kid was the most respected kid, and I figured that I, you know, I was the most respected kid. And I noticed that even though, you know, like, you know, I read a lot, and I was kind of scholarly in some ways. Nobody used to give me a hard time about it because they know I, you know, I would fight back. Now, from co- about comic books, in a 1984 interview with the Comics Journal, Harvey would say, from the, from the age of about 6 to 12, I collected and read them. Then my interest fell off to zero. In 1960, I married a woman whose little brother was reading a lot of comics, and I started to read them again out of curiosity. At that time, I got laid off of work and started buying them again. They were only 12 cents, but I got bored with the Marvel and DC stuff real quick. At age 16, Harvey developed an interest in jazz music and would begin collecting records. This was a tendency that continued for the rest of his life. He was known to have one of the most respected collections of jazz records in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, Harvey Picard graduated from Shaker Heights High School in 1957 then attended Case Western Reserve University, where he would drop out after a year. Harvey went to New York City for a brief time, meeting jazz historian Ira Gittler, with whom he'd already been corresponding. Uh, Gittler suggests that Harvey write for the Jazz Review magazine. His first article on Fats Navarro is published when Harvey was 19. Then he served in the United States Navy, and after being voluntarily discharged, he returned to Cleveland, where he worked odd jobs before being hired as a file clerk for Cleveland Veterans Administration Hospital. About his time in the Navy, Harvey would say, Yeah, I was asked to leave because I, again, you know, with the mechanical stuff, I couldn't pass inspections. I just got all hung up about the, you know, about washing my own clothes, and I couldn't tell whether my clothes were dirty or clean, and I would be standing there at the you know, the sink, scrubbing my clothes when everybody else was through, and I wouldn't know whether they were clean or dirty. He held this job at the VA hospital even after becoming famous, refusing all promotions until he would finally retire in the year 2001. He always said the smart thing for a creative to do was to get a secure, flunky job that came with a pension. Yeah, and then you could spend your free time uh, making comics or whatever. Sure. Uh, that, that thing about him not, not knowing whether his uh, uniform was clean... That was also later in life. He would also often write about how he, he could never wash dishes enough. Mm. He, he, did, he never he, knew when they were just clean never enough. knew when they were clean. Just yep. he would stand there forever and ever and ever and just never get clean enough. And it was like his uh, had a weird OCD about it. Sure, absolutely. Now, uh, talking about Harvey's job, he would say, God, I thought, God, I'll never find another job like this again, you know. It was so ideal for me, you know. It's easy. I don't have to go home and worry about the work. I just go in, you know, do the work and go home and think about writing something. And, you know, I had health insurance. And so, I mean, why wouldn't I want to stay with it? I didn't think I possibly could do any better than that. I thought it was the best I could possibly do, and, you know, maybe I was right. Interesting, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Picar was married from 1960 to 1972 to his first wife, Karen Delaney. 
Now, Jazz Review Magazine folds, but Harvey's able to pick up more writing for the Jazz Journal, Jazz Monthly, and Downbeat. In 1962, Harvey meets Robert Crumb in Cleveland. Harvey told the Comics Journal, In 1962, I met Robert Crumb and his roommate Marty Pals, who was a talented writer and cartoonist. They were living in Cleveland, about a block away from me. They interested me in comics again, but in good stuff like Jack Cole and Will Eisner and Walt Kelly and Seagar, of course. I was familiar with their work, but I hadn't looked at it in quite some time. Unlike most of the 40s superhero stuff, it stood up quite well. It wasn't just of period interest. Crumb was working on his Yum Yum book then, and I was very impressed with it. I thought, man, this is tremendous. More on Robert in a little while. So uh, the two of them bonded over a mutual love of jazz and were introduced by a mutual record-collecting friend that may have been Marty Pals, I'm not sure. Hmm. In 1970, Harvey wrote an article about Robert Crumb for the Journal of Popular Culture, and then encouraged by Crumb in 1972, Harvey began writing for the burgeoning underground comic scene. More on that in a moment. Crumb's work in underground comics led Picard to see the form's possibilities, saying comics could do anything that film could do, and I wanted in on it. In 2006, he further elaborated, When I was a little kid and I was reading these comics in the 40s, I kind of got sick of them because after a while they were just formulaic. I figured there was some kind of flaw that keeps them from getting better than they are. And then when I saw Robert Crumb's work in the early 60s, when they moved from Philadelphia to Cleveland and he moved around the corner from me, I thought, man, comics are where it's at. He published his first strip called Crazy Ed on the back cover of the People's Comics Number no. 1, comics with an X. Of That's uh, September, ni- yes, <laughs> September 1972 cover date. Robert Crumb drew it. In fact, he wrote and drew every other page of the issue as well. Then a flurry of Picard written comics were published, some of which would sneak their way into American splendor. We had A Mexican Tale with Greg Budget and Moonen in Flaming Baloney X, published by Cleveland-based Propaganda Inc. that came out around 1975. Stories It Pays to Advertise, Ain't It the Truth, and The Boys on the Corner, the, A Good Ship is Best, with uh, Willie Murphy that came out in Flamed Out Funnies Number no. 1 from Ripoff Press, uh, August 1975 cover. Uh, story, The Kinsman Cowboys, How Do You Get Into This Business Anyway? That was with Greg Budget and Gary Dumm. That was in Bizarre Sex Number no. 4 from Kitchen Sink Press, October 1975. Famous Street Fights, The Champ, with Robert Armstrong in Comics Books Number no. 4. Uh, Comics Book Number no. 4, make that, in uh, from Kitchen Sink Press, February 1976. Don't Rain on My Parade with Robert Armstrong as well. That was in Snarf, number six, from Kitchen Sink Press, February 1976. And later that year, Harvey self-published the book we're about to read, American Splendor, number one. Hey, well, look at that. But uh, a little bit of context to why this comic exists. Uh, Yes. For much more information about it, be sure to check out episodes 12 through 16 of Weird Comics History. That's in our archives at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. We do a pretty exhaustive look at underground comics, uh, where they came from, what they did, where they went. But Mm -hmm. short of it, for the purpose of this episode, is that the underground comics scene began in 1968 with the publication of Robert Crumb's Zap Comics No. 1. Following the surprise success of that comic book, cartoonists descended on San Francisco to join this new world. Uh, We're sure that drugs and free love had something to do with the migration as well, I have a feeling. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) These comics were distributed around the country in head shops and on college campuses, circumventing traditional newsstand distribution. In this scene, people made comics about anything. The first autobiographical American comic started to come out. 
Binky Brown meets the Holy Virgin Mary with a March 1972 cover date by Justin Green is usually acknowledged as the genesis of these autobiographical comics, though many contributors to the anthology series Women's Comics did some autobiographical work as well, or sometimes not very cleverly uh, disguised autobiographical work, you know. (laughs) Uh, Robert Crumb and Aileen Kaminsky released Dirty Laundry Comics number 1 in 1974, a joint confessional comic book documenting their budding romance, though depicted aboard a fantasy spaceship, and they're married now. This is the one where Robert drew half the panel, she drew the other half of the panel to uh, mixed results. (laughs) And so the stage was set for Harvey Picard to unleash his Cleveland tales. On an unsuspecting populace with American Splendor number one. Now the cover title reads From the Streets of Cleveland comes colon American Splendor number one. In the top left corner are a caricature of Robert Crumb, helpfully labeled R. Crumb. He says, Don't be fooled, kids. I only did a two pager. <laughs> uh, now, this little drawing looks like it could have been drawn by Crumb himself, uh, but not necessarily. In any case, it was included in at, the, at least one, uh, one collection of Crumb's work. Uh, the rest of the cover is certainly drawn by uh, some combination of uh, Gary Budget and Gary Dumb. Uh, Greg Budget and Gary Dumb, and uh, we will meet them in a moment. Yeah. A uh, blue banner above the cover image, but below the title reads, Big Bicentennial Issue. And remember, 1976 was America's Bicentennial, and there were several celebrations, events, and special products, but this issue has nothing to do with any of them. Just just this mention on the cover, and then we don't hear about it again. You Uh, can't even get a belt buckle with it. Nope, that's it. Uh, Three guys sit inside of a storefront advertising Tommy's Vegetarian Foods, Italian and Lebanese specialties slash fountain service. And a picture on that sign depicts a carrot, celery, and other vegetables dancing happily on a plate. The three men from left to right are Sid. He's a bearded guy in glasses and checkered pants, and he's holding a pipe. Freddy, an unassuming guy in jeans and a red T-shirt, has a bowl haircut and a Freddie Mercury-style mustache. Harvey, hairy, balding guy in a tank top, and this is obviously Harvey P. Carr. Sid says, and then this Serbian nationalist Gavrilo Princip say, am I boring you guys? To which Harvey responds, no, Sid, you're fascinating us. All right, so uh, <laughs> on the inside cover, we have our very first feature. It's called 101, 101 Ways to Pick Up Girls. And Take it is notes. by, that's right, this is important <laughs> stuff. This is by Gary Dumb and Greg Budget. We'll do their bios now. Gary Dumb was born December 7th, 1947 in Cleveland, Ohio. From 1971 to 1983, Gary Dumb worked as the assistant manager of the Cleveland-based of Kay's Bookstore. From 1976 until 2010, Gary also worked on Pico's autobiographical comic series American Splendor, much of the time as an inker embellishing the pencils of Greg Budget and Joe Zabel, though he also illustrated some stories on his own. Dumb has also inked Zabel in other venues, including Caliber's Dancing With Your Eyes Closed, Fancy Fantagraphics Real Stuff, and Zabel's own title, The Trespassers. Although Dumb's work was characterized by one reviewer as ham-fisted, whose characters all look 45 years old, Picar says he had a great appreciation for Gary as an artist and as a person. He's also good to work with. He's always on time, and he can meet practically any kind of deadline. He's especially good at working large blocks of text into his work without making it seem text-heavy. Dumb also collaborated with Picar as the primary artist on two full-length books, Ego and Hubris, The Michael Malice Story, and Students for a Democratic Society, A Graphic History. 
during the 1980s, Budget and Dumb worked on a series in Dr. Wortham's Comics and Stories, an underground-slash-alternative comic series that was published by Clifford Neal, as well as a number of other alternative and independent comic book series as well. Uh, in the early 1990s, Budget and Dumb co-wrote and drew stories for Eternity Comics, Plan 9, for Outer, uh, the, Plan 9 from Outer Space, colon, 30 years later, and their own erotic series, Shooty Beagle, and uh, Woofers and Hooters both came out by Eros Comics. I've actually seen those Plan 9 comics, and uh, that, that movie may not have needed a sequel, i got to tell you. Probably not, yeah. So Gary contributes a regular strip consisting of illustrated bios, uh, blues people to the newsletter Music Makers Rag to this day, and his editorial cartoons have been published in Cleveland Scene, Cleveland Free Times, and The Plain Dealer. Gary's cartoons have also been shown in Entertainment Weekly, The New York Times, and The Village Voice. Tom says he feels itchy when he's not drawing, and he married his wife, Laura, in 1971. They live on the west side of Cleveland with a family of eight, un- uh, eight rescued stray cats. In 2013, Garrett and Laura, Gary and Laura unveiled a love letter to Cleveland, three murals measuring 8 by 28 feet installed near the West Market in Cleveland. And you can check both of them out at dumbart.com. We will have that in the show notes, but that is D-U-M-M art.com. Yes, we have uh, Greg Budget, born around 1952, and we're going to assume also in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, Budget attended Ohio State University, and he graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree. Picar and Budget began working together in 1974. This is before American Splendor. Budget illustrated a couple of short Picar stories, uh, one of them in partnership with Dump, in the underground comics anthologies Bizarre Sex and Flaming Baloney X. From 1976 through 1988, Budget illustrated stories in the book we're going to read, American Splendor. Uh, Budget was one of Picard's most frequent early collaborators. Uh, Most of his stories were inked by Dumb. Uh, Budget drew a number of American Splendor covers as well, including issues 2, 3, 7, 8, 11, and 13. By the early 1990s, Budget had de-emphasized cartooning and didn't work in the industry again until 2004, when at the urging of Gary Dumb, he illustrated another Picar story in the 2004 collection, American Splendor, Our Movie Year. He was a regular contributor to Vertigo's two American Splendor limited series in 2006-2008. And uh, on to the comic, the ins- we'll get, jump right into the story, 101 Ways to Pick Up Girls. The inside cover of this reads, Long Island Journal Modern Living Section, vertically on the outside margin. Uh, I think it's supposed to look like one of the newspaper's sections, right? Yeah, but it so. doesn't really work, but, you know, no. <laughs> that's fine. It doesn't land. Uh, now, the copy reads, 101 Ways to Pick Up Girls by Harvey P. Carr. It says, hey, fellas, how many times you've been walking down the street thinking about nothing in particular when all of a sudden a vision of loveliness appears before you? She's got long, delicately curved legs, firm, uplifted breasts, beautiful, wind-blown hair. She's the woman of your dreams. You follow her frantically, thinking of something to say. Finally, she gets into a taxi and whisks away, leaving you with your mouth hanging open, another opportunity lost. This column is especially written for guys like you. Every day, a surefire method of picking up girls will be illustrated. Try out the technique shown below and see if it doesn't help. So, in six panels, a story is told of a man accosting a woman on the street, finding her name is Betty, and then announcing with satisfaction that he will call her Betty. 
So that's how you do it, guys. To that's it. Notes. Uh, really, mm-hmm. the, the stars of this particular comic are the detailed backgrounds that show yes. a certain urban grittiness that looks dirty but not unappealing. It's like a cartooniness to it, but uh, it definitely looks like uh, a, a run-down neighborhood. Uh, sort of a hallmark of underground comics aesthetic to have this kind of detail. Definitely a, a hallmark of American splendor. You see it throughout this comic. So the first comic on the first page is called A Fantasy, and this one is drawn by Robert Crumb. We're going to do a uh, little bit of information. You can watch the documentary Crumb, directed by Terry Zwigoff in 1995, for more horrifying insight into the oh, Robert yeah. Crumb and his upbringing. There's also a slightly more expanded biography in Weird Comics History, Episode 13, which is part two of our series on underground comics. But here are some highlights that are more Harvey, will lead to something more Harvey Picard specific. Mm-hmm. So Robert Dennis Crumb was born August 30th, 1943 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Parents Charles and Beatrice had an unhappy marriage and fought a lot in front of their five children, three sons and two daughters. They moved around a lot early on due to Dad's career as an illustrator for the military, but in 1955, the Crumbs moved to Milford, Delaware, and stayed put. Charles Crumb Sr. retired in 1956. Robert's dad was a stern, serious man, verbally and physically abusive to all the boys, at least. Charles Sr. broke Robert's collarbone when he was five years old, and he made no bones about the fact that he considered his sons to be sissies, and... Just consider this, he would now be home a lot since he's retired, Mm -hmm. so there it is. Not a pleasant time. Uh, Inspired by Walt Kelly's comic strip Pogo, Fleischer Studios cartoons, uh, Betty Boop, Popeye Superman, Little Lulu, Mad Magazine, and Walt Disney, the three Crumb brothers would produce comics at home under the direction of their eldest brother, Charles Jr. The Crumb brothers self-published a humor magazine called Foo in 1958, and they sold it door-to-door with little success. And this would uh, sour Robert on comics for a little while. At age 15, Robert became interested in jazz records from the 1920s through the 40s, and this would become a lifetime, a lifelong obsession. He would visit the local black neighborhood and knock on doors, asking if they had any jazz records he could buy or just even listen to. Uh, when Robert graduated high school, his father gave him 40 bucks and a not-so-subtle hint to hit the skits. Yep, keep it moving, fella. <laughs> Two so, 20s and out the door. Exactly. Yeah, that, that was a little bit of money in those days, but it wasn't that mm-hmm. much, you know. Uh, so Robert found work at the American Greeting Card Company in Cleveland, Ohio in 1962, first as a color separator, then as an illustrator, despite the fact that his boss often said his drawings were grotesque, and his boss was... Tom Wilson, the future creator of the one-panel comic strip that sucks, called Ziggy. Uh, He worked there for four years, Robert, that is, uh, producing cards for their highbrow line. This made his artwork cuter at the boss's direction and would have a lasting impact on his work uh, evermore. Robert fell in with some local bohemians, chiefly among them Harvey Picar. They became friendly over a mutual affection for early jazz records. In the introduction to the first trade collection of American Splendor, Crum wrote, Harvey was the first person I ever met who was a genuine hipster. I was very impressed. He was heavily into modern jazz, had big, crazy abstract paintings on the wall of his pad, talked bop lingo, had shelves and shelves of books and records, and never cleaned his apartment. He was seething, intense, burning up, always moving, pacing, jumping around just like a character out of Kerouac. Uh, Robert Crumb married Dana Morgan in 1964, and after some promising correspondence with Harvey Kurtzman, Crumb headed for New York and worked as a gopher for Kurtzman's Help magazine. He also submitted a few cartoons to it while he was there. 
Robert and Dana bummed around a bit, uh, being broke in Europe for a while, and then returned to New York to do some work for Topps Trading Cards. Then he and Dana moved back to Cleveland, and Robert got his old job back. In 1965, Robert tried LSD for the first time. By his own account, this changed his perception of everything and had a profound impact on his art. Robert and Dana would continue to use LSD, including one bad trip of Robert's that lasted a half year and caused them to split up. Uh, they would reunite uh, after taking LSD together and uh, presumably having a better trip. So that's a beautiful romance story right there. It is. It is. It's a Disney story. That exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> LSD splits us apart, brings <laughs> us together. It's a cure-all. Anyway, uh, in January 1967, Crum met a couple of acquaintances at a Cleveland bar who were heading to San Francisco. Yeah, interested in the rock concert posters, posters of Wes Wilson, Victor Moscoso, and Rick Griffin, and bolstered by the good reception to comics he'd submitted to the underground newspaper East Village Other, Robert decided to go along with them without telling his wife or his job. Uh, San Francisco was, of course, at the time, the counter-cultural center of the United States. Uh, his wife, Dana, would follow him to, to San Francisco shortly. Don't you worry about that. Uh, like we said before, Robert would produce Zap Comics number 1 in 1968, becoming a superstar of and practically creating the underground comic scene. Though Dana was around, Robert had many girlfriends during the halcyon hippie days of San Francisco. He'd eventually settle down with Aileen Kaminsky. And we get more into this in that weird comics history series. Anyway, that should be enough to set the stage for this particular story. Yes. Now the story is a fantasy, and in it, Harvey himself is sitting in his rundown on, on his rundown couch in his rundown apartment. He's eating a sandwich and drinking a coke. Yeah, he says, "Spit. Looks like another miserable night." When suddenly there's a knock at the door. Huh? Who's that? Harvey opens the door, and Robert Crumb, Aileen Kaminsky, and TZ are there. Yes, Harvey. Go, um, uh, Crumb goes, Hi, Harvey. Hi, how's it going? Crumb, TZ, and uh, it's Arlene, ain't it? Aileen is how I pronounce it, folks. Yes. Uh, Crumb and the gang pile into Harvey's house. TZ kind of looks like a miniature Albert Einstein. I don't know who, I don't know who he's supposed <laughs> to be, but that's what he looks like to me. Not sure, yeah. Crumb goes, We were on our way back to California, and we thought we'd crash with you here in Cleveland for a couple days, if it's okay with you. And wearily, Harvey replies, yeah, it's okay, I guess. Have a seat. Then Harvey has a change of mood and, and also an idea. He thinks to himself, I heard he might be coming through town. The forker acts like he don't know his old friends unless he needs a favor off of him. Well, here's where I turn the tables on him. I know his weak spots. I'll play on his guilt and then give him the hard sell. While Robert is sitting on the couch reading an issue of Record Research, Harvey stands and barks. Listen, Crumb, you son of a bench. I ain't heard from you in a year and a half. What the fork out of friend are you? Well, I. I ought to wring your skinny neck. What do you think? You're too good for your buddies in Cleveland? But. Now Crumbs begins looking through Harvey's record collection, and Harvey says, Well, never mind that. I got a proposition for you. So let's get down to brass tacks. Huh? Now Crumb's sitting in an uncomfortable-looking kitchen chair, watching Harvey pace rapidly in a circle while ranting. Lately, I've been getting some of my comic book stories published, and they've been going over pretty good. Now I'm putting together a whole book of my things. How'd you like to do artwork for one of them? Well, I've been kind of busy. I I'd like to, but... But nothing. Listen, you lousy schmuck. 
You're a Paspin. You're over the hill. Keep. I'm on the way up. I'm offering you a chance to hitch your wagon to a star. Me. My new neorealist style is the wave of the future. Cats dig it. You always liked my work. Here we can see what a tiny dump Harvey's house really is. We can see that the ceiling is peeling and, uh, <laughs> from the looks of it, possibly about to come down. This would be a new lease on life for you. You're still pretty popular, but people are getting tired of your stuff. They want to see something different. What do you say, Turkey? Well, I, I, I guess I could do a one or two pager. Atta, baby. I figured you'd see it my way. I'm glad to see you're still my friend. Harvey seems to address the reader directly in the final panel with a look that could be described as a nightmare fuel. It's pretty scary, yeah. It is. The closing caption says, Seriously, folks, Crumb's a really great guy. Mm-hmm. And that's that. Now we jump into our next story here. This one is How I Spent My Summer Vacation, colon, 1972. Art is by Greg Budget and Gary Dumb. Uh, this is not an autobiographical story by Harvey P. Carr, but a fictional one, though it it has to at least have some autobiographical yeah, elements. Actually, it might it might be a straight up story, but the names have all been changed, including his own. So yes, yeah. Now, of course, this story does take place in Cleveland, well, sort of. Uh, it's partially. part of it, at least. Yeah. <laughs> We meet a fellow named Marv. He's wearing a T-shirt and jeans. He's dribbling a basketball, and he happens upon a long-haired guy named Lenny. Marv is analogous to Harv Picar, though whether this story happened to him, we can't be too sure. They link up and decide to shoot some baskets while Marv brings Lenny up to speed. Seems he spent a little while in San Francisco with a chick that uh, really put him through some changes. So Marv mentions a, mu- a mutual acquaintance named Eddie Bird, who was once in a band with them. Eddie and Marv have kept in touch, and when Eddie came through town most recently, he and his girlfriend stayed with Marv. Eddie is also a somewhat successful studio musician musician in California, and Eddie's girlfriend's name is Tina. This was during a time that Marv was depressed because of a recent divorce. So when Eddie and Tina came by, Marv was really glad to see him. Marv mentions that Tina was really cute and nice, and they hit it off pretty well, And while Tina and Eddie argued much of the time they were there. At one point, Eddie had to go away to Chicago for a couple of weeks and asked Marv if Tina could stay with him for that time. I guess that was kind of a thing that happened in the 70s. Just, I guess. Hang on to my uh, girlfriend for a while, thank you. <laughs> uh, Marv took this as a go-ahead to make time with Tina, and make time they do. Mm-hmm. While together, Tina cooks for Marv. They go on a picnic together and have a great time. And uh, yes, they also do a lot of screwing. Yes. Tina tells Marv that Eddie went to Chicago to see an old girlfriend, and uh, she could have gone, but Tina wanted to stay with Marv. Yes, eventually Eddie comes back and leaves with Tina, but tells Marv that he's got a place to stay if he ever decides to come out to California. Tina suggests that Eddie write to her. Yes, this is how we communicated with one another That's at right. that one there time. Was uh, no other way to do it, yeah? Yes, no no, no emails, no, uh, no social media. We just sent letters periodically that uh, would eventually make their way to the destination. <laughs> uh, Eddie and Tina would trade letters. Uh, many of them got pretty hot and heavy. They also have long-distance phone calls, and uh, they end by saying they love each other, you know? Uh, long-distance phone calls were also a thing that uh, cost people a lot of money oh, back yeah. in the day. Uh, remember, this story is being told by Marv while he plays basketball with Lenny. Uh, so Marv makes up his mind to uh, visit Tina when his vacation comes up at the end of August. We never really do find out what Marv does for a living, but he does admit to stealing stuff and uh, reselling it in order to make extra money. 
He also admits to cutting back on his food costs, which was easy since he normally lives on junk food anyway. Uh, Marv also mentions almost offhand that in one letter, Tina mentioned having an abortion, which I was expecting to come back, but it didn't. Nope. Uh, <laughs> this could have been Eddie's child. It might have been Marv's. Uh, so uh, something to think about. What do you think of that? Uh, it's, I mean, it sort of comes back, but not really, not in any kind of significant way, but we'll yeah. get there yeah, eventually. Uh, so anyway, by the beginning of August, Marv has enough money to reserve his flight. And before he leaves, Tina says Eddie won't even be around when Marv arrives. He figures this is just getting better and better. The Friday before Labor Day, Marv hops on a plane and flies to San Francisco. When he gets off the plane, Tina gives him a big hug and a kiss. But back at her house, she's reluctant to get physical. Tina acts really cold towards Marv and suggests they go out and get something to eat. While out, she spends a lot of time on a payphone tracking down Eddie. Eventually, Tina locates Eddie in Santa Cruz. She suggests to Marv that they make the two-hour drive to see him. Marv isn't thrilled, but what, what is he going to do? That's, uh, he's yeah. kind of at her whim. So they head down there, and Marv feels out of, out of place in this college town. And they eventually track down Eddie, who is staying at a hippie house full of people and babies. And probably several pets, I would bet. When, when they meet, uh, Tina and Eddie embrace and kiss, much to Marv's chagrin. He feels terribly rejected at this point, and I don't blame him. No. Uh, back in the present, Marv tells Lenny that he was boiling mad, but he was afraid to say something direct because he thought he wouldn't look cool. Uh, all of them spend the night at this hippie house. We have Marv crashing on the couch just feet away from where Eddie and Tina are sleeping on the floor. Uh, the next morning, Eddie makes a loud noise accidentally that wakes everybody up. Uh, then Tina convinces Eddie to come back home with them. Uh, these little... In, in little incidences uh, make the story seem uh, more human, though they're not really necessary for the narrative. No. Um, back at Tina's place in San Francisco, Marv finds that she lives with a couple of people herself. And that's, you know, common among the young folk even till today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marv mentions a short guy named Larry. He's nice enough, but very self-depreciating. He also mentions a neurotic Jewish chick named Janice. She just divorced her husband, who was a middle-aged psychologist in Honolulu. Uh, Marv says she uh, used to walk around almost naked in the mornings, and he regrets not having made a move on her. There's also an Australian guy just crashing named Phil, and uh, Marv called him Gefilte Phil. Uh, he'd met Tina in Mexico. Uh, this is Phil. He'd met Tina in Mexico City a month before. Now just hung around, mooch food, never left. Uh, now to, to explain his uh, little nickname, Gefilte fish is a dish made from a poached mixture of ground deboned fish, such as carp, whitefish, or pike, and is normally served as a Jewish appetizer. Yeah, so he's making his little comment about his frugality. We'll. Yes. Now back in San Francisco, uh, Tina and Eddie are hanging out together, leaving Marv with little to do. He just kind of wanders around town for a day or two. Finally, Marv confronts Tina while Eddie's there. He explains that he went through great personal expense to come here, and now she's blowing him off. Tina says it seemed like all Marv wanted from her is sex. Marv says she didn't, give, she didn't even give him a chance, not even to have sex, come to think of it. Uh, <laughs> Eddie admits that, she, that he shares some blame here, and had he not left Tina alone with Marv in Cleveland, this situation wouldn't have happened, which, you know, Chris, is technically true, right? Yeah. But he didn't create this situation. You know, this he is sure something, didn't. you know, he, <laughs> he did one thing. He left her alone. Everything else is really uh, the two of them. I mean, by this logic, Marv's parents also share part of the blame, <laughs> right? And, like, and also, like, parents too. Uh, yeah. you know, dinosaurs, everything going back to uh, the first primordial uh, amoeba. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, Tina says she and Eddie got closer during the time that she had her abortion, too. So this is where that comes up. 
but yep. then we don't hear about it ever again. Eddie says that San Francisco's a fun town. They can still have a good time while he's there. And Tina says her girlfriend in San Francisco, Sacramento has been bugging her to visit, so everyone prepares to go to Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Marv mentions that Tina's really sluggish before leaving, and they don't leave until 3 o'clock, and in that time, housemate Larry decides to take the trip with them. They drive several hours to Sacramento, and there's lots of traffic, and it's hot in the back of this two-door car, and by the time they get to Sacramento, Marv is feeling punchy and frenzied. Mm-hmm. They make it to Tina's friend's house. Her name is Anne. Uh, Marv describes her as a little flabby with yellow teeth. Uh, everyone heads to a local bar that plays country music. Marv would call it a hillbilly bar, and he says that there's a lot of Okies and Aukies in Sacramento. Okies, as Californians despairingly call them, uh, were uh, refugee farm families from Oklahoma area who migrated to California in the 1930s in order to escape the ruin of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. Aukies are basically the same thing, just only coming from Arkansas. Yeah, same kind of thing, and I have a feeling they didn't check the uh, credentials before they started assigning these names either, so it doesn't have to be that exact. So Marv's having a good time in Sacramento and notices that Anne really has a thing for Larry, like really has a thing. She's very upfront about Larry sharing her bed that night. Yeah, uh, he's she's too, really upfront. She's like, you know, the, you know, I got a night. I forget what she even says. She's like, she's like, you can even sleep with you me. You can sleep with sleep with <laughs> me tonight. You know, I mean, she's very upfront. Uh, he's too shy to reciprocate. Observes Marv. <laughs> then Eddie and Tina announce they're leaving early. Marv assumes it's because he's behaving so out of it. He keeps using the adjective drug, like he's feeling drug. And not just yeah. in this story either. It must have been like a period slang, I think, right? Uh, I think no... it has got to be, right? Because it comes up a few times in the yeah. issue. And I, every time I was like, huh? At first I'm like, drug? And, but, but I'm like, oh, I'm feeling like dragged, basically. Like I'm drugged I'm thinking, out, you yeah. know? Uh, there's no indication that Marv does any drugs aside from beer in this story. So yeah. uh, I think that's probably what he's saying. I'm just feeling drug. It must be... Must have been something in 1976 or whatever. <laughs> so there's a discussion as to whether they're going to stay in Sacramento or head back to San Francisco. Figuring he'll do Larry a good turn, Marv campaigns to stay in Sacramento. Then Larry tells Marv that he doesn't want to be with Anne at all. So now Marv campaigns for everyone <laughs> to head back to San Francisco. No one can understand why Marv can't make up his mind, and he's so embarrassed that he paces in the next room while everyone else just watches TV. Uh, we get the impression here that he's made a bigger deal out of things than, uh, than they really are. Eddie pleads with Marv to just calm down. Eddie apologizes for the situation, but asks Marv just to you know, tone it down a little bit, and Marv gets unnaturally angry. This freaks Eddie out, and he leaves the house entirely. Tina goes running off after him. And now, if as if it wasn't bad enough, Marv feels a lot worse. He just feels way more guilty. He just kind of waits outside for Eddie and Tina to come back. While the house is empty of everyone else, Larry and Ann get it on. There you go. So it all worked out for Ann also. <laughs> uh, Eddie and Tina come back, and they all pile back in the car and drive back to San Francisco, and everyone argues the entire way. Marv sticks around for a couple more days and irons out things with Eddie, but his relationship with Tina is irreparable. Back in the present, Lenny says Marv sure did go through some changes. What can he say? And Marv says that Lenny doesn't have to say nothing. They continue to play basketball, and Marv sinks one. And this was a tough one for Chris to get through, right? (laughs) (laughs) We didn't get to the ending yet, did we? We're done. Yeah. That, what? That, Wait, what? That is the conclusion, unless you have more to your issue than I do. Oh, oh, also, Lenny says two points. That's that's. The, there you go. That's, Lenny that's, says that's what I was waiting for. Two points. That's it. That that's, ties it all together. That's the final. That's the punchline of the thing. 
but I got I just want to briefly just say with this this story, which I had you know not like it's a uh, story I've memorized. But, uh, I didn't I only read it again for this recently. You know that uh, it really spoke to me just because so many parts of this feel familiar to me. It's very real. Yeah, you know, real. it's like and the in the way it's being told by definitely from like I can think about talking to friends where they just can't get. I got to think of a friend right now that just can never get to the point. Tell mm-hmm. stories in reverse. He likes to kind of circle around, but like, you know, this exact thing, all this stuff never happened to me, but a lot of these kinds of things, sitting in the back of a car for hours and coming out of it feeling like a zombie, mm-hmm. uh, you know, seeing a long, a long distance friend or girlfriend and like that it's awkward at first. And it's weird, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's all. It just, it's so there, there's something incredibly human about this, although compelling. Not the adjective I would use for that one. Yeah, it's 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 tedious, but it's like a good kind of tedious. Where I, I the first time I read it, I, I wrote to you and I'm like, I'm like, what the hell is mm-hmm. this? But then I read it again and it's like, okay, I kind of get it now. You uh, sort of get it, yeah. It's, yeah. it's it's not my favorite thing in the world, no. but I definitely appreciate pre, uh, appreciate it for what it is. And uh, like you said, there is a lot that you, that anybody can relate to. I think when you hit a certain age, where it's like. Well, you know, relationships you had aren't exactly what you thought they were, or maybe right. they're. It's it. There's a lot. Very, very human. That's a perfect, uh, perfect word for it. Even saving money and stuff like that to do something you sure. want to do. I mean, this is just like this is the way. This is stuff you don't see in a lot of other stories in general because it's the mundanity yeah. of life. But uh, sure, that's what American Splendor is all about. And let me tell you, <laughs> the the next one really drives that home. I feel like uh, it's called The Rank. A lot shorter, this one. This is Layouts by Lad Jerick. And here's the only information we could find about Lad Jerick. It's from the inside cover of The Varmints, Living with Appalachian Outlaws, a memoir by Ted Coonfield from 2011, self-published. It said, Lad Jerick, now deceased, created the original Fighting Cock artwork in the early 70s for a T-shirt that read Varmint Entry. And we'll post that artwork on the blog. (laughs) Uh, that literally that and this that's that's all that's that we could find uh, the art for this that, that's just the layouts of the art in here is by Greg Budget and Gary Dumb uh, we got two fellas we got a big John and some unnamed guy with a slick back haircut they meet each other out on the street big John is big he smokes a small cigar and he wears a jacket with a patch that reads city slow pitch champion on it so I guess he's a softball guy. I guess. Uh, now, the other guy is uh, more slender, and he smokes a cigarette, and he also wears a long coat. As the two talk, they walk for a while through Value City Discount, which is a department store. Uh, despite the spelling of this establishment, V-A-L-U-C-I-T-Y, this is almost definitely a reference to Value City, or one, you know, two words, uh, an American discount department store chain that once boasted 113 locations. It was founded in 1917 by Ephraim Schottenstein, a traveling salesman in central Ohio. Yeah, the chain focused on buyout and closeout merchandise and occasionally irregular in apparel and factory seconds. The first store, actually branded Schottenstein's, was located in Columbus, Ohio at 1887 Parsons Avenue on the corner of Parsons Avenue and Reeve Avenue. Closed in 2006 because it was at the nexus of two avenues, which is ridiculous, folks. Uh, on, two, on October 27, 2008, Value City announced that the chain was filing for bankruptcy and that all remaining stores would close and sales were completed on October, December 23, 2008. Now, I think the shtick of this comic, Chris, is that it's two regular guys talking, right? A lot of effort has been made to write out the proper 
improper pronunciation to the dialogue. Yeah, for sure. Uh, as usual, we will do our normal butchering of the dialogue. Yes. <laughs> the guy says, hey, hey, Big John. Big John says, hey, what are you doing here? Oh, not much. I just got to get some Polaroid film. We're having a family reunion, I figure, to take some pictures. Oh, yeah? I got to get a can of paint. I'm finishing my basement. Oh, yeah? I just fought through doing that. Jeez, I enjoy coming up here. You run into so many guys, you know. Know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, how's a new job? I bet you're pulling in pretty good dough. Yeah, 10.35 an hour, plus I get a lot of overtime. The fellas are in the store's record department, where a woman in a headscarf is looking through the records with her son, who is uh, dressed like a veritable newsie. I mean, really? <laughs> uh, I have a feeling this little seed's a reference to Cleveland's very large Polish population. That's what we think. Probably. The headscarf lady goes, Hey, Zignu, here's one by Little Wally and the Poker Chips. <laughs> and then Big John says, Of course, you know. It's hard work and it's seasonal. I figure to get laid off for the first couple of years till I get some seniority built up. Plus, the government's putting pressure on my union. We'll probably have to start lending some people I find personally undesirable. And uh, it's not verbatim for good reasons, folks. Yeah, we don't say that word. Uh, the guy, the guy, the guy replies, "Oh, that's too bad. I bet you ain't too crazy about that." Nah, but I don't give too much of a spit. It really gets to some of the old guys, though. So one of them says he's going to quit if they get in. Oh, yeah? Hmm? Well, how do you think the Browns will do? This Phipps didn't do a good, nice job? Yeah, I never thought too much of him, but I gotta admit he's been looking good. But there's not enough of a physical team. They need some rough guys that'll really stomp on you like Dick Butkus. And Dick Big John slams his fist into his palm as he says that. Yeah, that's true. You got a point. Now, these guys are talking about the professional football team, the Cleveland Browns. In 1944, taxicab magnate Arthur B. Mackey, uh, Arthur B. Mickey McBride uh, secured a Cleveland franchise in the newly formed All-American Football Conference. Paul Brown was the team's namesake and first coach. The Browns began play in 1946 in the AAFC and won each of the league's four championship games before the league dissolved in 1949. Then, the Browns were absorbed into the National Football League, or, you know, otherwise known as the NFL. That's, that's how we know them, yep. Mm -hmm. uh, when the upstart American Football League and NFL merged and before the 1970 season, Cleveland became part of the new American Football Conference. While the Browns made it back to the playoffs in 1971 and 1972, they fell into mediocrity through the mid-1970s. The reference in this dialogue to Phipps is for Mike Phipps, who was a quarterback in the NFL for 12 seasons during the 1970s and 1980s. He was third overall pick in the 1970 NFL draft and played professionally for the Cleveland Browns until 1977 when he was traded to the Chicago Bears. Dick Butkus was a linebacker, but only for the Chicago Bears from 1965 to 1973. As for the Cleveland Browns, their story, their history is fascinating and hopefully detailed <laughs> in a full-on sports-oriented podcast. But just one more tidbit, the Cleveland Browns are the only NFL team without a logo. A brown football helmet serves as their only signifier. Yes, and I think, and I think they've only won one game in the past three years. So there's. Also I think that. that's that's also well. They, they actually came back. They they were gone for a while, and then in the late '90s they They're got the Ravens. Yeah, they got exactly. Like they became the Ravens, but uh, that's so. Uh, hopefully. Another podcast can fill in all the blanks for us here. It's true. And now back to the riveting conversation of Value City Discount. Uh, now, during this last part of the conversation, an announcement blares over the store's PA. It goes, 
Ladies and gentlemen, at 4 o'clock, TV stars Houlihan and Big Chuck will be here to sign autographs and show their latest movie. The Kielbasa Kid meets Ed Tarboose. And Big John says, yeah, I was downtown yesterday. I ain't been down there in a while. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they were having a sale at Bond, so I bought me a suit. Bond clothing stores, Bond clothes, Bond clothiers, and or Bond stores was a men's clothing manufacturing company and retailer. They catered to the middle class consumer, and they were founded in Cleveland, Ohio in 1914. Mortimer Slater, Charles Anson Bond, and Lester Cohen founded the stores as a retail outlet for their suit manufacturing company. Charles Bond has, an, has been mayor of Columbus, Ohio, so his name was chosen for its market value as, as well as its recognition. Bond stores operated numerous retail outlets in the United States, and in the late 1960s, they had around 150 stores. Between 1948 and 1954, Bond Clothes operated a massive sign on the east side block of Broadway between 44th and 45th Streets in New York's Times Square. The sign had nearly two miles of neon and included two seven-story tall nude figures, a man and a woman, as bookends. Between the nude figures, there was a 27-foot high and 132-foot wide waterfall with 50,000 gallons of recirculated water. Beneath the waterfall was a 278-foot-long zipper sign with scrolling messages. The Bond zipper was made up of more than 20,000 light bulbs. Yeah, just to compare, and if you've seen that the building is still there, but the sign is different, but the New York Times zipper sign that circumvented the Times building had 14,800 bulbs. Hmm. Uh, so, like, 5,000 less than this uh, this, than this, this advertisement. Yeah. Now that sign in the Times building is an LED sign, so the bulb count is irrelevant. Uh, yeah. Above the waterfall on that sign was a digital clock with the wording, Every hour, 3,490 people buy at Bond. In 1946, Bond built one of the last standalone downtown stores designed in a high-concept art modern style in Cleveland, Ohio, at Euclid Avenue and East 9th Street. And I think I'm going to try to put a picture of that on the blog, too. It looks yeah, crazy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, by 1980, stores had dwindled down to 50 nationwide, and by 1989, Bond had ceased operations. So... Back to our fine Cleveland fellows and their discussion of a suit. Oh, is that so? What kind of suit you get? And at this, Big John laughs so hard, his trucker hat falls off. What kind of suit? <laughs> what a rank! <laughs> huh? I don't get it. What are you laughing at? I didn't go downtown yesterday. I was working. Man, did I rank you or did I rank you? <laughs> Oh, I get it. That's pretty funny. <laughs> I'm glad you're not mad. Some guys get mad at me when I rank them, but you can take a joke. Very good. That's it? That's it. That's the oh, end of man. the story. <laughs> you didn't get the punchline? He told me, see, Chris oh, you ranked he said him. I get he it. got a suit, but he, he, never, he never went downtown. He never got a suit. That's the joke. Oh, I get oh, it. Man. That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. Our next story, Remembering Be-Ins. This had art by Brian Bram. Let's meet him now. He was born May 9th, 1955 in Chicago. He was raised in Deerfield, Illinois. Bram's first paid illustration job was a logo for a local rock band. At 17, he began contributing to Triad, a Chicago-based alternative magazine that published work by Skip Williamson and others. At 18, Bram served briefly as an art director for that magazine. 
Ram moved to Cleveland. Where did he go? He moved to Cleveland in 1975 to major in design and illustration at the Cleveland Institute of Art. Underground cartoonist Jay Lynch introduced him to Harvey Picar, who hired him to illustrate stories in the first issue of American Splendor. In fact, the story we're going to read, and Bram contributed to the first two issues of American Splendor. In 1980, he moved to Rochester, New York, to study film and animation at the Rochester Institute of Technology. There, Bram was a main contributor to the creation of Eber the Alien, a mascot for Rochester's Chamber of Commerce that drummed up business and tourism for years. The name Eber is an acronym for I'd Rather Be in Rochester, which was a jingle for the city written prior. There was even a large puppet built that required seven people to operate, and Ibir did debuted six months before the movie E.T. the Extraterrestrial. <laughs> even though it sounds like a total ripoff, it actually came out first. Yeah. Uh, that, was, that movie was 1982, directed by Steven Spielberg. In 1983, Bram produced and hosted an all-night movie program on WUHF Channel 31. It's called All Night Live. In addition to movies, the program was a forum for local bands, including Personal Effects, The De- the DeGrads, and uh, Cousin Al and the Relatives. Since 1987, Bram has been living in Boston, Massachusetts, and working as a creative director in the interactive industry. He's currently a director of web marketing at Suffolk University. So this story, Remembering Beans, is advertised as a Harvey Picar story illustrated by Brian Bram right on the fr- first page. A caption tells us this story happened summer 2010 A.D., so just a few years back, right? Eight yeah. years ago. Uh, a slender, balding man in glasses is sitting on a park bench, and two young guys are walking by. One of them carries a book. His name is Harold. The other guy is never named. It seems to be a running theme in PCAR <laughs> stories. We only get one name per uh, per group. Uh, the balding man says hello to the young guys, and they respond, Hiya, Mr. Shapiro. He asks about the book Harold's carrying. It's it's called a decade of uh, sorry a decade of turmoil, America in the '60s, which does not appear to have ever have been an actual book. No, <laughs> oh, but we get the idea. We've seen books yes. like it, right? Certainly, certainly. Now they ask him about beans, and Mr. Shapiro reminisces. He hated them. They depressed him. Uh, this story really appears to be allegorical to Harvey's life in uh, some very specific respects. Seems Mr. Shapiro and his wife lived in a crummy apartment in a rundown, crime-ridden section of Cleveland. The marriage had gone south, and neither of them kept up with the cleaning. She would be on the telephone in the bedroom for hours every day. So Mr. Shapiro would go for a walk, and if it was a Sunday, the most depressing day of the week, there would be a B-in downtown. So B-ins were a form of protest that grew out of sit-ins in the 1960s. Sit-ins are when a person or a group of people go to the site of a grievance and secure themselves by sitting or fastening in order to force arbitration. These began at the, with the lunch counter sit-ins of 1960 in Greensboro, North Carolina, and Nashville, Tennessee to protest segregation. People still do it today. It is, it is pretty effective. Yeah. Uh, you think uh, occupying the dean's office or people chaining themselves to a tree slated for removal. Right, stuff like that. Essentially put yourself in the way of something and make yourself yes. a nuisance until Become people, an obstacle, yes. people listen to you. Now, be-ins were ostensibly a series of protests against the Vietnam War happening in parks and open spaces in cities across America during the late 1960s. A little bit different. Right? Yeah. Instead of entrenching yourself in the dean's office, you go to a, a public space anyway. Go to and a party and get high. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Human Being, this is the first one, was an event in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park Polo Fields on January 14, 1967. 
It was announced on the cover of the fifth issue of the San Francisco Oracle as a gathering of the tribes for a human bee-in. The human bee-in took his name from a chance remark that the artist Michael Bowen made at the Love Pageant Rally, which took place the day that, uh, that a new California law banned the use of the psychedelic drug LSD on October 6, 1966. So many famous members of the counterculture appeared at, at this human bee-in, including Timothy Leary in his first San Francisco appearance, and this is where he would first say, tune in, turn on, drop out. Poet Allen Ginsberg, Ram Dass, Dick Gregory, Leonard Kendall, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Jerry Rubin, Alan Watts of the Hells Angels, rock bands Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Quicksilver Messenger Service, and Blue Cheer. Reports were unable to agree whether 20,000 or 30,000 people showed up at the Bean, but both of those numbers are pretty impressive. Pretty impressive, yeah. Uh, underground chemist Owsley Stanley provided massive amounts of his white lightning LSD, specifically produced for the event. Many later saw this event as important in bringing together the Berkeley radicals and the hate Ashbury hippies. Whether it was an effective protest is for you to judge. An estimated 10,065 people participated in an Easter 1970, I'm sorry, 1967 be in at Sheep Meadow in Central Park. During 1968, the previous year's Peace Rally and the Easter be in were combined into a single springtime event. About 90,000 people gathered at Sheep Meadow, and amongst the speakers at this particular demonstration was Coretta Scott King, who spoke in place of her husband, Martin Luther King, who had been assassinated assassinated just 10 days earlier on April 4th. Wow. The, yeah, it's that's quick. That's uh, <laughs> totally. Uh, now, the Village Voice described the crowd as apathetic and said that there was a feeling that this had all been done before. So, now, during the early 1969 B-In Peace Rally at Central Park, the Village Voice reported that there was said to be in between 15,000 and 20,000 people in attendance. One person described Sheep Meadow as having the aura of a bombed-out battlefield as bonfires had been ignited. Things became even worse when one person leapt into one of the bonfires. When he was finally pulled from, when he, he was finally pulled from the bonfire by other demonstrators, word came that an ambulance would not arrive until Sheep Meadow was cleared. Because the crowd would not disperse, the man had to be carried through the crowd to be transported to the hospital. In addition to this, Three police officers were injured when the demonstrators hit them with rocks. So Yikes. Great job, guys. Great job all Yeah. That. Good, good. <laughs> In November 1969, protesters took a different approach and organized a lie-in at Sheet Meadow in Central Park. <laughs> they didn't want to stand around anymore. Oh, God. Uh, why, why stand when you can lie down, Chris? Come on. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they were ahead of their time. Uh, now, about 3,000 protesters laid out blankets on Sheet Meadow and held uh, white and black balloons used to symbolize those killed and those potentially killed in the ongoing Vietnam uh, War. Okay, yeah. So, by the time the uh, Mr. Shapiro in this story is talking about, uh, beings and the counterculture in general were not what they had been. Uh, he was disenchanted with how phony everyone was. He said he'd go to the ones in downtown Cleveland, there'd be junkies looking for handouts, there'd be old dudes scamming on teenage girls, lots of people talking aimless politics. And if things weren't so crummy with his wife at home, he'd like to have spent time with her or at least watch an Indians baseball game on the TV. But instead, he found himself hanging out with people he didn't really like or respect for lack of having anything better to do. Now, the unnamed young man is sad that Mr. Shapiro didn't have a good time at the B-end since everyone else seemed to be having a good time. 
Mr. Shapiro says he was saying the very same thing to a buddy of his, and his friend pointed to some guy lying in the grass with a girl. Mr. Shapiro's buddy said, man, but if you turn that guy over and got into his head, he'd be miserable. Mr. Shapiro then realized that everyone around you is probably in hell, despite looking, you know, well put together. <laughs> <laughs> it's an uplifting story. Uh, he that's, that's, pretty much, that's pretty much how I live my life, i got to be honest that's, with that's you. That's like about the only way you can. Yeah. Uh, he elaborates that feeling. That feeling rotten goes, uh, goes toward building character. He finishes by saying, that's my inspirational message for today. Feeling rotten is normal. Remember, boys, you heard it here. Thanks, Mr. Shapiro! And they all run off licking a lollipop, you know. <laughs> and now we know. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Our next story, a tune is introduced in Cleveland. Says art by Gary Dumb, and we've already met him. In this uh, one-page story, a sunglasses-wearing blues musician at a blues club introduces a song called Sidewinder. This one is also about the dialogue, written specifically to sound like what we assume is a black man from Cleveland or a black blues man from Cleveland. Yeah, and we uh, we will do our best to not make it not be the worst. Uh, <laughs> the blues man says, Thank you, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I guess I don't have to tell you about how some of these women be sometime. They be lying and signifying and slipping around behind your back just like snakes. Dude in the audience goes, I hear you. And at this, the blues man waves his forearm kind of wavy like a snake. And he says, this next tune is about a broad like that. It was written and composed by the late great trumpeter Lee Morgan, who got wasted by his old lady while he was on the stand playing. A lady in the audience goes, oh, that was cold-blooded. Imagine that. A bench done threw blew a dude away while he taken his solo. Anyway, we surely hope you do enjoy Sidewinder. And this is a true story. Edward Lee Morgan, born July 10th, 1938 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, was an American jazz trumpeter known mainly as one of the key hard bop musicians of the 1960s. He came to prominence in his late teens recording on John Coltrane's Blue Train, 1957 and with the band of drummer Art Blakey before launching a solo career. His song, The Sidewinder, on the album of the same name, became a surprise crossover hit on the pop and R&B charts in 1964. Morgan was killed in the early hours of February 19, 1972, at Slug Saloon. It's a jazz club in New York City's East Village, where his band was performing. Following an altercation between sets, Morgan's common-law wife, Helen Moore, a.k.a. Helen Morgan, shot him. Uh, the injuries were not immediately fatal, but the ambulance was slow in arriving on the scene as the city had experienced heavy snowfall. They took so long to get there that Morgan actually bled to death. Helen Morgan was arrested and spent a short time in prison before being released on parole. After her release, Helen Morgan returned to her native North Carolina and died there from a heart condition in March 1996. So on to the next story, and boy, this one's going to be a, a corker, huh there, Chris? Yes, it is. A love story, and oh boy, it's not really a love story. Art by <laughs> Dumb and Budget. This one begins in uh, summer 1946. Uh, here's another where the main character, Herbie, is clearly a stand-in for Harvey Picar. He doesn't really do this so much later in the series, by the way, for American Splendor. He, later on, he has no compunctions against playing himself in the yeah. comics, but I get, maybe in his first one, he's finding his voice fits what he's comfortable talking about. 
Uh, our story begins when young white Herbie meets his young black friend Elaine and plays doctor with her. And it's not too graphic, but they do it. They sure do. Just gonna say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we jump ahead ten years later. It's autumn, and Herbie is working at his dad's corner grocery store. He hates doing it, but he feels obligated. You know, it is family. Herbie has a good rapport with the customers, as shown when he's haggling over the price of collard greens. Then Elaine comes in, and she's all grown up, and she's dressed in some particularly flattering clothes. Uh, she has to reintroduce herself to Herbie as Elaine Rawlings, but he soon remembers everything. She explains that her family had moved away to Detroit and then moved back. She had a baby and then had to drop out of school as well. Now she lives with her boyfriend, and she swears that they'll get married soon. In the meantime, her boyfriend has her turning tricks. Uh, Herbie asks uh, how she likes it, and uh, also how much she charges. Uh, Elaine tells him it's $5 and invites him over. In fact, she suggests Sunday, uh, when she'll have more time, says uh, she might even enjoy it because he's a pretty cute boy. So, <laughs> later, Herbie meets his friend, and this is one of the best names you'll find anywhere, Cosmo Bonaventura. Love it. On the street and tells him what happened. His friend Cosmo warns him against getting the clap. By the way, the <laughs> clap is the sexually transmitted disease gonorrhea. Incidentally, I don't know if the... Kids today still use those terms, but that's what that <laughs> <I don't> is. <laughs> uh, that night, Herbie fights with his mom over homework. Then on Sunday, he goes to visit Elaine, and her pimp, uh, I mean her boyfriend, invites mm. Herbie right in, and he and Elaine have sex. And this is way more graphic than the scene of the kids playing doctor at the beginning. Thank goodness for that. Wait, what the hell am I saying? Wait, wait, what's going on? Yeah. I don't want to see either one. <laughs> no, no, we don't. And I got to say, I'm glad we didn't full script this one. No. Uh, <laughs> Oh, boy. <laughs> After that, Herbie leaves and takes the bus home. He feels pretty good about himself. Seems that this is Herbie's fourth time, and it might be his favorite. Uh, back in the neighborhood, he bumps into Cosmo and tells him what happened. Cosmo ribs Herbie a little, and then Herbie asks him what he did all day. Cosmo says he watched the game on TV. Herbie walks off and says, like, says it sounds like he had a more exciting day than Cosmo for a change. The closing caption reads, What kind of day was it? A day like all others that alters and illuminates our times. And you were there. And Whoa. Deep. Uh we are we are coming close to the end here, folks. Uh, we got another story. <laughs> a Mexican tale. This is a Picar budget and dumb production. This is a conversation between between two guys hanging out at the decrepit looking front desk at Hotel Had Hotel Hadam. One of them is behind the desk, uh, a rat faced guy that continually slaps at flies with a fly swatter. The other who doesn't talk is a heavier, balding guy with a round nose wearing a tank top and suspenders. And the clerk says, actually, this is the whole story. The clerk it says, <laughs> you know, years ago, a guy used to stay here named Mexico Adams. Nice old guy, you know. Paid his rent on time, used to keep to himself a lot. I was curious about his name, you know. I'd say to him, Mr. Adams, why do they call you Mexico? And he'd just smile and say, ah. I'd say, was you born in Mexico or something? And he'd just say, ah. Then one day after I hadn't seen him for a while, me and a couple of the boys went and checked his room. Found him laying there stone cold dead. Must have had a heart attack, I guess. Anyway, never did find out why they called him Mexico. They had us going there, didn't they? That's it, yep. <laughs> it's like that ping pong ball joke where it's, <laughs> the kid dies before he tells his father right. what he does with him. Oh, well, that's that's the uh, that's all the insides of this book. That's but uh, let's take a look at the back cover. It's got art by uh, by dumb and budget, 
At the Cleveland bus, de- bus Depot, two guys throw eggs at a departing bus and its passengers. One guy has a red jacket that reads, Vladic Moving and Storage. The other is blonde. He wears a low-slung cap and smokes a, g- the, smokes a cigar. The guy in red jacket says, You fuckers can leave if you wanna, but I'm staying in Cleveland and fighting. And the guy in the red cap says, That's telling him, buddy. Let him go. Cleveland doesn't need that kind. These look like they might be a specific people. Uh, who they are, we can't rightly say. Uh, we suspect that this is a response to many young people that headed west during the 60s and 70s, but again, we can't be sure. Not really sure what this is about, but it does feel like a very specific thing to Cleveland to in point 1976, out, yeah. you know? So uh, it's cool. And I will say one thing about the underground comics, Chris. you got to admit that for whatever the cover price is, you, you usually do get you comics get from cover here. to cover. You know, yeah. you, they do not waste space on... Uh, you know, other ads or anything. This is a anywhere they can fit a comic, they fit a comic. Fifty-two yeah. plus, you know, four pages for the cover of full-on comics. So that concludes issue one of American Splendor. Uh, I hadn't looked at this for a while, but this is one that I used to look at a little bit as a kid. My dad would get it, and uh, I gotta say, this this work speaks to me in, in a very weird mm-hmm. level, a, a very strange way, Chris. It's more like a Guy Delisle novel, or like one of these things, like. You, you don't read it to, to feel happy. You read yeah, it to yeah. feel weird. You know you what I mean? Experience, it's, it's, it's something you read to experience more than it is to even be entertained. It's it, just, it's, yes, it, that's exactly yeah. right. Yes, it's more of about a journey, about a process. For uh, sure. It's, it's for more sure. illuminating, like a slice of life. And it's a slice of life that no one really, that you don't normally illuminate. But, uh, sure. you know, as we go through all these stories, a lot of them, they like, I felt. These are more things that actually happened to me instead of, like, the story of some rich guy that, uh, you know, had a gilded life and, you know, whatever, got shuffled to and from a uh, boarding school. So, uh, sure, sure. Which, is, which are the usual <laughs> biographies or, you know, people that get uh, talked about in history. So uh, I dig it. And uh, yeah. I'm glad I'm glad you took a look at it. I don't know if we'll, maybe we'll, there is one issue we may look at again down the line or if anyone else has a particular one. But uh, we are going to take a little break here. And when we come back, we will wrap up all about American Splendor and Harvey Picard. Uh, we'll talk to uh, James uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. You know, every time our next guest is in this studio, all of our lives are in serious danger. A big mess is left behind, and once again, I'm forced to hold strange creatures. Uh, here's a tape of what he used to be like. Watch closely. Well, I'm a hundred bucks, man. I'm no, no, well, you're I got 490 than... now, 490, you know? yeah. and that's good. Yeah. That's good. You I like... don't have to sell books. I don't have to do anything. But you come because you like being with me, don't you? I don't even know you, man. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the new and improved comic book author, Harvey Picar. Harvey. <laughs> Hi, Harvey. Nice to see you. Harvey. You know, Harvey, uh, first of all, thank you very much for putting us on the cover of your uh, new issue of American Splendor, volume number 12, right? right. And uh, I, I, read the, I read it cover to cover, very entertaining stuff. Thank you, thank thank, you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. And you look, you look good and you sound, you sound better. You, last time you sound a little hoarse, now you sound very relaxed, kind of contented. <laughs> Man, you don't know what I sound like. Like, see if I try to talk like this. See, that's how you yeah, used to sound. Yeah, yeah, right. And now you sound a little like Vaughn Monroe. Yeah, right. You like? You want me to sing Racing with the Moon? Yeah, let's hear a little. <laughs> go on, go on. <laughs> but what, what, what has caused the change? I don't know what's caused the change. Are you happier now? Are you more relaxed now? No. 
I don't know what's caused the change, David. The last time I saw an ENT doctor... Your nose and throat. Yeah. Very good, David. <laughs> I didn't know you were up on that technical jargon. Uh -huh. uh, the last time I, you know, like I saw an EMT doctor, and this is the truth, mm -hmm. he said uh, uh, that, you know, like he didn't know what was wrong with me, and I had a, his advice was that I should, you know, like call on my inner resources. Mm -hmm. Try to heal yourself. Uh, $35, that's what I paid for, you know. <laughs> So you went to a top flight man then, huh? They're all the same. They're yeah. all the same. I work in a hospital. They you look good. You see, you seem a little more, uh, I don't know, laid back. No. I, uh, I keep it. I don't know, man. You know, I feel all right. That's good. How, how are things in Cleveland? I always like to hear how things are uh, from the city on the man, banks of I Lake Erie. That's a stupid question. You know it's a stupid question. <laughs> you know, you're trying to bait me. Man. I'm not trying to bait you. How, now, now tell me about Cleveland. How are things? How's the summer? How's the ball team? Are they out of it now? Well, you want to talk about baseball? Ask me about the athletes straightforward. They're, they're, yeah, it looks like a bad year. For you them. go to a lot of games? I haven't gone this year. I'll go see them. Yeah. All right. You know, I mean, I'm disappointed. I don't have any pitching. You know, what yeah. can I do? Well, that's but, right. Yeah. Always next year. Wait till next year. <laughs> everybody we're going to talk a little bit about uh, american splendor the comic book and there's a reason why we have to specifically mention the comic book we'll, we'll mention in a minute uh, american splendor had one issue per year for the first 16 years of its life published and written entirely by harvey picar except for the 16th issue which was published in association with tundra publishing Aside from a dip to 56 pages in 1978, American Splendor ex expanded to 60 pages per issue after number one, continuing until number 17, which was published by Dark Horse Comics. And it came off that $1 cover price pretty quickly, too, Chris, let me tell you. That, that <laughs> went away pretty much right away. In fact, I, in fact I have a feeling uh, issue number one in reprint was no longer a dollar either. Oh, I bet not. Yeah. Uh, from 1993 on, American Splendor had an irregular publishing schedule, sometimes lying dormant for a few years, other, to other times issues coming out several times per year, and this was handled by two publishers. From 1994 to 2002, Dark Horse Comics published a series of one-shots by Harvey Picar, each individually named but accepted as issues 18 to 31 of American Splendor. Then beginning in 2006... Vertigo published two volumes of four-issue miniseries by Harvey Picar, each numbered American Splendor 1 through 4 for their purposes, but collectively accepted as issues 32 through 39 of American Splendor's total run. So you want to collect this one yet, Chris, or what? Uh, <laughs> I'm sure those first few are probably really, really tough to. I to bet. No, yeah, no, yeah, they really are. Uh, there are trades galore, but I mean, just, oh, I'm sure. Just the uh, just finding the numbering, you'd be like, did I get? Do I have? <laughs> do I have volume two, issue three, which is really issue thirty-eight? Or you know, you don't know. That's Ajita in the uh, waiting. Man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the last issue of American Splendor had a cover date of September two thousand eight. Now, the series, as we mentioned, would be completely written by Picar and featured artwork by the folks featured in the first issue, plus Spain Rodriguez, Joe Bell, Jerry Sham Shamray, uh, Frank Stack, Mark Zingarelli, Joe Sacco, Dean Haspiel, Josh Neufeld, Jim Woodring. Chester Brown, Allison Bechtel, Gilbert Hernandez, Eddie Campbell. David Collier. Drew Friedman, Hoche Anderson, 
Rick Geary. Ed Piscor, uh, Hunt Hunt Emerson, Bob Fingerman, and Alex Wald. Harvey also had stories illustrated by his wife, Joy, Joyce Brabner, uh, more on her in a little bit, and Alan Moore. As for his process, in 1984, Harvey would say, I write the stories in panel form using stick figures with balloons, and I indicate in the panels or on a separate sheet of paper what I'd like in the backgrounds, what I'd like in the characters, what I'd like the characters to look like, and so forth. Then I talk to the illustrator, and we have a meeting of the minds about what the drawing is going to be like and what, where we go, f- and then we go from there. When asked about uh, how much latitude he gives his artist, Harvey replied, far more than what Harvey Kurtzman gave them. <laughs> <laughs> Though uh, Harvey uh, would keep back issues in print in order to compound his income, he lost thousands of dollars on that very first issue we just read. Uh, much of Harvey's comics writing, uh, which became more directly autobiographical right after this first issue, normally deals with modern America and his own angst. And sometimes stories from his youth or even vignettes of uh, overheard conversations at work. Indeed, some of his colleagues at work would actually become fan-favorite characters in the book. Yeah. Uh, In a 2006 interview, Picar explained the origin of the name American Splendor. When I was a kid back in the 40s, I was a voracious comic book reader. And at that time, there was a lot of patriotism in the comics. They were called things like All-American Comics or Star-Spangled Comics or things like that. I decided to do a logo that was a parody of those comics with American as the first word. For some reason, Splendor in the Grass always struck me as a hilarious title, so I figured that if I put that together with American, the result would be kind of humorous and ironic. In a 2005 interview with NPR, Harvey explained, I was sort of on a mission with American Splendor. I wanted to try and prove that comics could do things. I wanted to expand them beyond superheroes and talking animals. But I knew that was going to take a long time. I just started writing an autobiographically about my quotidian life, because I think everybody's life is interesting and just kept going at it. In an interview with Gary Groth for a 1984 issue of the Comics Journal, that's the 1984 quotes we've been doing the whole episode, he elaborated, Well, I may have a bigger ego than most people. That's for others to decide. But the main reason I write autobiographically is because I find it hard enough to understand why I myself do things, let alone why others do them. I want my writing to be as accurate and plausible as possible. I find that when others write fiction, they project their own ideas, impressions, sensations, and experiences on their fictional characters. Sometimes, of course, with magnificent results. For my purposes, though, I figured I'd cut out the middleman, the fictional people, and write about me, the person I know best. Not that everything in my book is completely true, but an awful lot of it is. I will change people's names or occupations sometimes, or maybe compress events that took place over a period of time into a few days. He continued, Yeah, I want to write literature that pushes people into their lives rather than helping people escape from them. Most comic books are vehicles for escapism, which I think is unfortunate. I think that the so-called average person often exhibits a great deal of heroism in getting through an ordinary day, and yet the reading public takes this heroism for granted. They'd rather read about Superman than themselves. Also, I think we see and hear stuff during the course of our ordinary days that's a lot funnier than what's happening on situation comedies. I incorporate some of this everyday humor into my work. Truth is funner, funnier than fiction. And then he went on to say... Generally, I think it's best for people to face their lives and their societies, to think about them, to deal with unpleasant facts rather than trying to make believe they don't exist. But it's hard for many to do that. 
When they go through with their daily work, some probably don't want to be reminded of it. It may seem like a busman's holiday for them to read American Splendor, which focuses on their everyday struggle. I'll tell you this, though. I've had a surprising result with, with, when people I've worked with have seen the book. A lot have liked it, um, and maybe if I had better distribution and publicity, it would sell better. Of course, some comic book fans don't know what to make of American Splendor. They think a normal comic book should be about super beings who can fly, that a comic dealing with everyday people doing everyday things is weird. Ordinary is weird to them. Wow, that's really ironic. Sort of. Frequently described as the Poet Laureate of Cleveland, notably by Anthony Bourdain, and Picar would be featured in Season 3, Episode 11 of Anthony Bourdain's travel show No Reservations, which... Obviously, what took place in Cleveland. Uh, he's uh, Picar helped change the appreciation for and perceptions of the graphic novel, the drawn memoir, the autobiographical comic narrative, according to Michael Cavanaugh of the Washington Post. In that same article from 2011, Neil Gaiman was quoted saying, I think probably the most important thing about American Splendor in all its incarnations is that there were very few people in the earlier days of comics prepared to put their work where their mouth was. Harvey believed there was no limit to how good comics could be. To chronicle his life from these tiny wonderful moments of magic and of heartbreak, and the most important thing was that he did it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, more uh, more on Harvey. As mentioned, uh, Harvey put out a new issue of American Splendor for the next 15 years straight. They would show up usually in May, all self-published until the very end. Harvey married his second wife, uh, that was Helen Lark Hall, in 1977, and they would remain married until 1981. Picard's third wife was writer George Brabner, who managed a, a comic shop in Delaware. No, Joyce. We're going to say Joyce Brabner. What did I say? You said George, but that was totally an accident. <laughs> so the, this is one of those rare times listening to make sure it's, we know it's Joyce. Yes, that's it's all. Joyce. Joyce. <laughs> not George, yeah, not George. So that's her brother with someone else, yeah. I think it might be a cousin, yes. <laughs> uh, I always get those two confused. Um, now, they would correspond, and she came to visit Harvey in Cleveland. Uh, she essentially never left, and they were married in 1984. In an interview with Joyce in 1993, she said, flying out to his, at Picard's part of the country on other business and decided to visit him. And the next day we decided to get married. In an interview with NPR in 2005, Joyce uh, elaborated about being included in American Splendor. She says, It was sort of incumbent upon me to make sure that our marriage hadn't ha had a happy ending. I first became really aware of what was going on when, after about a year or so, people, you know, fan uh, sent fan mail to Harvey all the time, and we got letters that said things like, Well, we weren't real sure about you, you know, in issue 9, but now that we've seen what's going on in issue 10, you know, it seems like we're here to, you're here to stay, and you're good for our man. And so, you know, the marriage was approved of by all these people who didn't know who we were, but just read about us in comics. Not long after that, the daughter of two of Joyce's friends, Danielle Bantone, uh, came to live with the Picars. They eventually adopted her outright and raised her as their own. This was initially against Harvey's wishes, but he came around. He came around, you know, who, who can deny a nice little kid? Mm -hmm. So, Picard's comic book success led to guest appearances on Late Night with David Letterman beginning with October 15, 1986. He was invited back repeatedly and made five more appearances in quick succession. During these appearances, Picard was incre increasingly combative with Letterman to the amusement of the audience. 
The most heated appearance was on August 31st, 1988, when Picar showed up wearing a shirt that read, On Strike Against NBC, and accused Letterman of being a shill for NBC's parent company, General Electric, even pointing out GE's connection to the military-industrial <laughs> complex. Uh, Letterman promised never to invite Picar back on the show after that, but he did come back uh, on Late Night Again on April 20th, 1993, and he appeared on The Late Show with David Letterman in 1994 after Letterman moved to CBS. This was all told in American Splendor Number no. 12 that came out in 1987, drawn by Gary Shamray. In a 2017 interview, David Letterman said, Picar was anti-establishment in a way you don't see guys like that anymore. And that used to really upset me because I just thought, come on, Harvey, don't do this to us. Just play the game. Blah, 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 blah. Now, geez, I wish I could have had Harvey on every night. Picar never stopped writing for jazz magazines and collecting jazz records. Indeed, there's a tandem of history of Picar that could be told about his fame in those circles. A tandem story for a music-based podcast, right. we, would, uh, we well, would wager. Hopefully someone handled that. We're not yes. going to do it. <laughs> we, 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 we're not going to go that deep. Uh, now, he also wrote lots of, story, lots of reviews for literary fiction in the early 1990s. He appeared in the Los Angeles Reader, the Review of Contemporary Fiction, and Woodward Review. He won awards for his reviews, which were broadcast on public radio. 1994 brought the book-length comic Our Cancer Year, written by Harvey P. Carr and Joyce Brabner, with illustrations by Frank Stack, who was published by Four Walls, Eight Windows. This is a, a division of New York Press. Now, this, this uh, story details the couple's trials dealing with uh, Harvey's cancer. This would be the first of three times he'd battled the disease. On January 20th, 2003, Fine Line Pictures announced, released American Splendor, the movie. Hey. That's why we uh, said the comic That's earlier. right. <laughs> this is directed by Sherry Springer Berman and uh, Robert Pulsini. It starred Paul Giamatti as Harvey Picar and also Harvey Picar <laughs> as himself. Yeah. <laughs> you really have to see it to understand. It's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's unusual. It is. It's, uh, it's a weird movie. It bounces yeah. around a bit. Mm. Uh, now, Harvey thought the movie was great, and he was very impressed by Paul Giamatti's performance. Also, by his own admission, he enjoyed hanging out on the set and also taking advantage advantage of craft services. Yeah, I think he probably ate and better than his life. Yeah. yeah, I would yeah. I'd love it. Sometimes I see that set up <laughs> in New York. I'm like, why can't we have the bagel? Uh, <laughs> Jeff Newalt, a friend and creative partner of Harvey's, made his op- made this observation in 2012. My one issue with the film, which I thought was great and so did he, was that it overemphasized both in script and Giamatti's performance, Picar's curmudgeonly side, whereas in real life, he was uber appreciative and ever enthusiastic about a myriad of subjects and people. Picar wrote two larger works which carry the American Splendor label. It's our movie year, Ballantine Books 2004. That's a collection of comics written about or, or at the time of the American Splendor film. And Ego and Humorous, Hubris, the Michael Malice story that was Ballantine 2006, a biography of the early life of the author Michael Malice. In October 2005, Vertigo released Picar's autobiographical hardcover, The Quitter, with artwork by Dean Haspiel. The book detailed Picar's early years and his tendency to leave projects unfinished. And it was like this book that led to the movie deal, sort of. Dean Haspiel was doing illustration work for the studio that would ultimately produce the film. So that's so they were starting work on this. He did, and what's amazing is they had kicked this around. The movie got greenlit, 
and was finished and released before the quitter came before out. So the... <laughs> that, sh- that shows you how laborious and sometimes how sometimes these guys got to put down a job and pick up one that pays, I have a feeling. Certainly. Uh, in June 2007, Picar collaborated with the student Heather Roberson and artist Ed Piscor on the book Macedonia, which centers around Roberson's studies in the country. Uh, January 2008 saw another nonfiction work from PCAR, Students for a Democratic Society, colon, A Graphic History. It's released through uh, Hill and Wang. Uh, in March 2009, PCAR released The Beats, a history of the beat generation, illustrated by Ed Piscor. Uh, in May 2009, he released Stud Turkle's Working, colon, A Graphic Adaptation. This features work by several artists, including those that worked on American Splendor in the past. In 2011, Abrams Comic Arts published, how are we going to say this here? Yiddishkeit. Yiddishkeit. Uh, This was co-edited by PCAR with uh, Paul Paul Buell Buell? and Herschel Hartman, and this depicted many aspects of Yiddish language and culture that I just destroyed. Um, (laughs) Artists in this anthology include many of PCAR's previous collaborators. In uh, 2012, Top Shelf published Harvey PCAR's Cleveland, which is illustrated by Joseph Remnant. Half autobiographical, half history of Cleveland. Shortly before 1 a.m. on July 12, 2010, Picar's wife Joyce found Picar dead in their Cleveland Heights, Ohio home. In October, the Cuyahoga County Coroner's Office ruled it was an accidental overdose of antidepressants, floexetine, and bupropion. Uh, Harvey had been diagnosed with cancer a third time and did not want to undergo treatment again. His headstone features one of his quotations as an epitaph, Life is about women, gigs, and being creative. In December 2010, the last story Picar wrote, Harvey Picar Meets the Thing, in which Picar has a conversation with the Thing, Ben Grimm. This was published in the Marvel Comics anthology Strange Tales 2. The story was illustrated by Ty Templeton. Got a couple of awards here in 1987. American, he won the American Book Award for the first American Splendor anthology. And in 1995, the Harvey Award Best Graphic Album of Original Work, and that was for Our Cancer Year. Yeah, which actually is, I think, the only thing, well, not the only thing, but the only autobiographical thing on this list that I've never looked at. I got to take a look at it. I read half of it this week. It's pretty good. Our Cancer Year, yeah, that one? Yeah, Uh, I read that a couple days ago, half of it. Yeah. I I, want to give it a look. I I do dig his work. That Cleveland book is good. Uh, This is strange comics, folks. This is not, Absolutely. Your average fare, but it, but it's if you if you like this look into the everyman, it, it's uh, it resonates. And you know what's interesting about this? You know, you see his life. Uh, he just was he languished in obscurity until that movie came out. For sure. Know? And like For his sure. his whole life, you know, all that stuff, all the all these books, it all happened like six years for him. And uh, six years like that, I think that's about all he could have handled anyway. Frankly, <laughs> I don't possible. I don't yeah. think he was built for the. Uh, you know, limelight. That's not his. That was not yeah, his. He's style. not a red carpet dude. Yeah. But uh, I recommend people go take a look at this. There are a few trade collections I've seen out there, and there's even stuff like just the crumb ones. You know, there's like mm-hmm. you know, if you if you don't want to look at other you know artists or whatever. So uh, worth a look, I think. If not, sure, you can definitely remit any complaints, but try to remit <laughs> fewer complaints and more. Uh, you know, happy thoughts or write to us about. Harvey Picar, the city of Cleveland, or anything you like at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us over at Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic history. Find us on Tumblr, cosmic 
We're on Twitter at Cosmic T Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. See our weekly writings on new DC Comics at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And you can see Chris's daily writings on his personal blog, chrisisoninfiniteearth.com, where he reviews a different DC comic every day of the week, and it's been a nice potpourri. I saw a Team Titans today. You had a... Yes. You had uh, some, what were you looking at? Was it Flash? Some Lobo, some Flash. Oh, yeah, the Lobo. You've just been grabbing uh, whatever whatever is nearby, I think. So uh, really, really, you know, doing the work. So make sure to check that out. Chris is on infiniteearth.com. Also, the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you can find our in-order archives and uh, also uh, show notes on most of our uh, more recent, say, within six months yeah. <laughs> episodes. Um, we're trying to backfill as well as we can here. We just found out that uh, you can actually change the date on blog posts. So uh, I can actually we can actually fill them in and put them on the date they were actually released. Whoa. So. This it's is not going to help. It's probably not going to help our numbers very much, but it'll help my uh, obsessive, obsessive nature. So, oh, uh... <laughs> you know our numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Give us a clue, please. Uh, we ask you to. Uh, we did, by the way, get a couple of nice uh, reviews on iTunes uh, recently. It's true. Yes. Uh, we really very much appreciate it. I know. Uh, Gal walks into a comic shop, didn't I? I think there was one other one before that, and I'm, I don't have it in front of me, so uh, I apologize, but we do very much appreciate it to review us, rate us, wherever you find us. Well, we can we can include those on our, on our I think next week it might be a big episode. Next week is looking like a big one. This next week yeah. will be the big one zero zero, folks, so Whoa. Uh, not, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how much listener mail or <laughs> contact we could fit in there, but... Uh, Whatever it is, we do appreciate it, and you know we we usually, we usually get around to it eventually, right, Chris? Like usually, maybe months after the fact, but we do get around to answering, to, you know, reading people's mails and reviews. And as uh, long as we're still breathing, we can say that we yeah. can still do it. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> Once we don't, you're gonna find my headstone with uh, "Life is about what was it? Who's you know ignoring emails? I don't know. Oh. Yeah, ignoring emails <laughs> and uh, forgetting to log into Tumblr. There so uh, <laughs> that's pretty much what our life is about. So uh, yeah, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? No, that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks. I want you to keep it on the treadmill, Clevelandishly. See ya.